What I want to do this morning, I want to see Jesus. Um, and I don't say that lightly. That can often be said as a sort of poetic statement. But I'm very, very serious that the essence of the gospel is not knowing about Jesus. It is actually at the deepest level of our being seeing him and knowing him personally and it fits in with, with I'm talking in, in John chapter 20 and we have been here many times but then I've been meditating on this story for the last I don't know how many decades and, and so there's no wonder I keep going back to it because I see something there and every time I talk about it, I feel I didn't quite say it properly. And so let's go back again. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. Mary Magdalene, she is probably, in the eyes of the world anyway, one of the most well-known ladies of the New Testament. Um, she's had movies made about her, um, even though they were as twisted and distorted as they could be. Um, she is well-known by name and has been given an infamous history. The fact is, <clears throat> we hardly know anything about her at all. Um, Mary Magdalene. Magdalene is not her second name. Um, it means... Uh, from Magdala and Magdala is a fishing village town uh, on the shores of Lake Galilee and so she was designated Mary that is the one who comes from Magdala uh, because there are so many Marys in the Bible and in, and in those days in which they lived Mary was obviously a very common name actually in the Hebrew it would be Miriam uh, Mary is a transliteration into our Western world. And so she was Miriam who came from Magdala. And all that we really know about her is it tells us in Luke 8 that she was the one out of whom Jesus cast seven demons. And even that, it, it just leaves us hanging because we have to say, how did that take place? What did that mean? Uh, <coughs> I can tell you this, it doesn't have anything to do with the movie presentation of The Exorcist. It doesn't mean that it looked anything like that. Demons uh, are, are the um, agents of Satan, the devil, whatever you want to call it. Um, I, I have a grave problem calling Satan him. That gives personality uh, we have an entity here, um, an entity so fallen inward, there's nothing personal left. And, and, and so demons are but expressions of that. And, and that speaks of torment. It, it speaks of intense mental, emotional darkness. It speaks of many things. But rarely, it does, but rarely is it anything like many people associate demon possession. Um, Whatever it was, out of a pit of despair and hopelessness, 
And out of the deepest mental, spiritual darkness, Jesus delivered her. And we don't know how. And we really don't know when, except she shows up now, and she's one of his inner circle, and she is designated Mary, Miriam, the one who comes from Magdala, and then we narrow it down, the one that Jesus cast seven demons out of. She became a follower of Jesus, um, a disciple. And I want you to be very careful here. Don't confuse that with what we understand today as being a believer. Please understand that. The Old Testament did not truly end until the resurrection. So we're in the Old Testament still here, and yet the new has arrived in the person of Jesus. And so you, you have this overlap, and you have words like they followed Jesus and by others' disciples, and that they were, literally. They followed Jesus. When he walked, they would follow after him, literally. And they would be there whenever he talked. And when he talked, it was the same way as rabbis of that age would have their disciples. That's not something unique to Jesus. <clears throat> rabbis would travel from town to town. Rabbis, it's a Hebrew word for teacher, and they, they were looked upon as the head of the synagogue, but also traveling, you could say more famous rabbis, and people would literally follow them, and they would teach there, and the word then was disciple. That is one who was disciplined to listen to what this rabbi was saying, uh, learn what he was saying, learn his ways and his doctrines, and tried to be like him. And that was a disciple, and you followed and followed and followed, and you would follow until the rabbi's death. Well, it looked very much the same with Jesus. People came and they followed him literally from town to town, and they listened to him every time he opened his mouth. And the best they could hope for at that time was try to be like him, but... It was very vague because he spoke of things that rabbis didn't usually talk about, which put a big question mark on where we're going. Well, they followed him all right. They followed him to a dead end. They followed him to the upper room. And in the upper room, he said, well, it's all over now. Um, uh, you're not going to follow me anymore. I'm introducing you to a relationship to me my relationship to you, that is beyond your imagination. It, it is more than mind-blowing, it's mind-exploding. You have literally never been here before, and so there are no words in any vocabulary to explain it. He said, I am leaving, and yet in the same breath he said, I'm coming, and in coming I'll come as the Holy Spirit, and he will live inside of you. You will be you, and I will be I, and yet I will be inside of you, your life, your very person, and you will be inside of me. And no longer will I be the rabbi there, and you here following me, but I will come inside of you. No longer me saying something that you now are going to try and live, but I will be that inside of you, sharing my life inside of you. 
and, and we all nod very wisely because we've talked about that for decades. But can you imagine hearing that for the very first time? Rabbis don't say that. In fact, rabbis of that day were mostly an arrogant bunch that made sure there was a big gap between you and them. And here Jesus is saying, I call you my friends and I introduce you to the Father who loves you even as he loves me. What on earth is this? This goes beyond discipleship. Be very careful. Um, in many places today, you can join discipleship groups as if disciple is what it's all about. Disciple is not what it was all about. Disciple led them to this point but a true discipleship in terms of the New Testament is that you are on an ongoing discovery of who Jesus is, and that discovery is fulfilled in a realization that he's not up or over or out, but he is within me without becoming me, and I am in him without becoming him, and yet for me to live is he, and for him to live is me, and as he is, so I am. And again, I say, that can be a bit confusing, even to us who have been hearing it for a long time, but the first time they hear it, what is going on there? And now, having said that, which was said on the last night as he was betrayed, and suddenly everything falls apart. And they watch as this one that has been literally everything to them, the one who has been the source of healing, miracles beyond description, as well as the description and presence of a life that they've never dreamed possible. And now he's in the hands of the temple guard and the temple leaders, which are as religious as religion can be, and at the same time outdid any mafia boss that you might know. They, they, they were the pits of iniquity while they were being the peak of religion. And, and they had joined with the persons they hated, which was the Roman Empire, who supplied the might and the power of their legions and together they've arrested him, and now they have looked at him. And again, I, I, I cannot imagine seeing what they saw. It's shocking enough for us who know the whole story, but as they are living through it step by step, minute by minute, and all they see is Jesus who has been um, tortured by men who represented the religion of the world and the might of the world. And he didn't fight back, and that probably was the most astounding thing that they're watching, that as he is being tortured beyond description, he is accepting it and saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. None of it makes any sense. There is no place to put this. There's no file inside their head to put it. They are in a state of confusion beyond confusion because they couldn't understand what he was saying earlier in the evening. 
now this, how does this fit with that? And he said this is what was going to happen, but now this is happening. I mean, we're we're dealing with thoughts that are exploding. And to see that he's dead, I, I, I I just don't know how they can even look at it and comprehend what, they're on the point of insanity to know that this one, and their fullest expectancy that he is the Messiah, their expectancy that he is going to overcome the Romans and be the the Messiah everyone hoped for. And now, not overcome the Romans. No, he's given himself into their hands. And and the temple, with all their religious wickedness, he gives himself into their hands. It doesn't make any sense. I, I can't imagine, I say that again, Um, being one of them, Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus of the Sanhedrin Council, joined with the woman, Mary of Magdala being one of them, who took that body off the cross, dead, and laid it in the tomb. Some of you have been to that tomb. I don't mean that religious one in Jerusalem. I mean the real one outside of Jerusalem, like just exactly as it says in Scripture. And I've been there in that ledge where they laid him. And they they washed the body and they put in their oils and spices as they wrapped the body in Hebrew burial fashion. But they couldn't finish because Sabbath was coming, Shabbat, and, and they had to total rest. And so they'll be back to finish the job. And they go away. And again, what words do I have? The whole dictionary falls apart. It doesn't stunned. No, that's a stupid word. They were infinitely more than stunned. They're they're at the point, I say, almost of insanity because nothing, nothing, nothing makes any sense whatsoever. The only thing that they can accept is that the Romans have won, that, that they have come and have um, captured the one that everyone said was the Messiah and now the Romans have won and the temple is triumphant and they're bringing out the champagne and they're slapping each other's backs and hands because we got him, we got him. And, and the disciples, that's all they can think it is so. Even though he had said multiple times, if you go back through the Gospels, that this would happen. He he spoke it out very plainly that he would be delivered into the hands of wicked men and they would spit upon him and scourge him and he would die and he would rise again on the third day. It couldn't be plainer for us who sit in our chairs and look at it knowing the whole story. But when that happened, even if they don't, they, I don't think they understood it when he said it. You know, it didn't make sense. It didn't fit. But certainly now they've forgotten it, even though it had happened exactly as he said. Our our brain does things like that, especially when you're in pain, especially in trauma, things that are the key to everything, we just forget them. It's pain. And then the Sabbath was over. I say very reverently, God only knows how they lived through that Sabbath. And now it's the first day of the week. That's our Sunday. And, and they go early in the morning. It was still dark. 
And there were more women involved than Mary. Other gospels say that the other women were there too, up to a point. But everybody seems to be coming and going. But they got to the tomb. I, I again, were they thinking? There's a bunch of women, and and the stone. Have you ever they they, they rolled the stone? Do you know what that means? It was about a. a what, 10 inches at least of a groove, the stone, great, enormous granite stone. But then there would be this slope of about 10 inches. And it took 10 men, 10 men to push that stone down that groove so it rolled across the entrance to the tomb. I don't know, 20 men to get it back up there. But then Rome had put a seal across it to say, if you dare break this, then, then the whole of the Roman Empire is going to come at you. Um, what, what are they doing? Going there and say, we're going to complete the job. How are they going to get into the tomb? I, I say it, you, you've got here a, a group of women that are blinded by tears and by grief, and they're not thinking. Just supposing they got into the tomb. There's no men there now. They're going to move the body of Jesus to complete the work. The whole thing is, well, it is what it is. I say there's no sense here. Sense left us when Jesus was arrested. But instead, of course, they come and they find the tomb is open. That stone had just been tossed aside. Oh. And, of course, when they look in, they see it's empty. What amazes me, they see angels there. Um, and please, none of this nonsense stuff, you know, about angels in yellow lingerie uh, and, and big, great big fluttering wings. Um, that was invented by when the church went to... Well, um, the, the better way should never be angels. Angels is a Greek word. What's it doing in English? They just didn't translate it. And which immediately gives us all these imaginative ideas because we don't know what the word means. Um, but translate it would be a word bearer, a messenger, even agent, God's agents. In fact, angels sometimes I think are God's secret agents. Um, we, we do have a secret service around us. Um, I won't go there, but... The, and it says they were sitting, they and they appeared, one gospel says, like young men. The thing about them was they were radiant with light, which should have given the game away. Um, what amazes me is that, that it does not satisfy the woman at all, at all. And that they accept the angels where well, you're here, but we weren't looking for you. Um <laughs> Uh, and you read it, they're, they, they're not impressed whatsoever that there's a visitation of angels. And the angels are totally confused because the women are weeping. And what are you doing here anyway? Do you remember the, the angel said, what are you doing seeking the living among the dead? And, and uh, didn't you hear what he said, that he would rise again on the third day? Well, what's the matter with you ladies? They don't get it. They don't get it. But the women, again, didn't seem to hear. Grief can do terrible things to your brain. And you you don't hear what's plain in front of you. And so the women depart. And then Mary, the Magdala lady, 
runs back to the disciples, Peter and John specifically, and they, they said there's been a grave robbery, that the tomb is empty, and, and so they come running. And that's another story by itself because John, who is the one much more meditative, much more contemplative, um, he doesn't just look at the facts. Peter is a fisherman, is a fisherman, is a fisherman. And um, he can weigh out a pound of fish. and So the, they both run. And John, well, he was young. He was about 15 or 16 at the time. And so he ran like a deer. And he gets to the tomb, but he feels the, the awe of it, and he stands outside. But Peter comes huffing, puffing behind him and goes blundering right into the tomb and sees and he doesn't understand the thing he's looking at. Good old Peter. But John comes in behind Peter and he sees the grave clothes are folded. This isn't a grave robbery. Robbers of graves do not fold the clothes. And then he sees that what had been around the head of Jesus has been neatly folded and placed by itself. And he says, in that moment, John believed. He got it. Doesn't say anything. And the two of them leave and go off. And it leaves Mary. And that's where the story really opens. And, and, and she again, and she, she can't stop crying. And, and she peers down into the tomb. Again, if you've been there, you know how that is. You have to bend over to see in. And she bent over and looked into the tomb. And there were the two agents, radiant agents with an unearthly light. And they look at her and they say, what are you doing? What are you crying for? Good grief. There is a joy as big as the cosmos. The whole universe is laughing this morning. And you're, you're weak. What's the matter with you? And, and again, it is, can you get it to walk into this room? This room is much bigger than that tomb. But if you walked into this room and there were two God agents sitting here, radiant in light, who, who look at you and say, what on earth's the matter with you? I think, do you understand? It would clue me in. There's something more going on here. You don't walk into HEB and see angels. I mean, uh, if, if angels are here, God's agents, something's happening bigger than what I thought. And they're asking, why do you weep? Why do you weep? And she doesn't answer them. And And I think, again, it's because she has no file for what's going on. She has no comprehension even of why she's weeping, except to say the whole world has fallen apart. She's in a mental darkness. She's blinded by hopeless tears. And all she can see is the Roman Empire and the temple. So what do you do with that? What do you do when you come to a point I don't understand? You invent a story. That, that's us humans. You cannot live with a question mark. You invent a story. And inventing a story that somehow invents 
a meaning, a purpose as to why this has happened. And then we believe our story. And that's the tragedy of literally millions of people. They come to a blank. They don't know who God is. And so they invent a God that fits life as they imagine it to be. And that's how you end up with this God who hates you, this God who's mad at you, punishment. and That's how it happens. Because if there's a a blank, a vacuum, we've got to invent something to go in there. And this lady, have you ever thought of this? She, along with all the disciples, they don't believe in the resurrection. It's amazing, isn't it? Have you ever thought of that? They absolutely believe Jesus is dead and gone. No, That's what they believe. And the only way they can make sense out of this is to this cockamony story about a grave robbery. Well, I mean, grave robbery did happen. Um, but if, if you just stood back and looked at that stone and looked at the Roman Empire seal across it, it's a kind of stupid story they've made up. But it's the only thing that makes sense. Got to make sense. Got to make sense. Let me tell you this. If you've got a gospel that completely makes sense to you, you probably haven't heard the gospel. Because I'm serious. There's 90% of the gospel, I, I don't understand it. No, I mean, let's begin. I don't understand how God become man become absolutely one of us and still be God. I I don't understand that. I never appeal to my brain. I don't understand that. And what we're looking at, yeah, I can understand that they didn't believe in the resurrection. I can understand that. There'd never been a resurrection before. Don't, Don't confuse this with what happened to Lazarus. Don't, don't confuse this with what happened to Jairus' daughter or back in the Old Testament with, with Elisha. I, please, that, in the best sense, that was a resuscitation, meaning they rose from the dead, but they died again. You understand? They're all dead. Do, do you understand that? Lazarus rose from the dead in a limited sense. He was dead. Jesus called him. He, he came back to life, but he died again. You get that? Jairus' daughter probably lived a wonderful life, but she died again. Jesus is still alive. That's resurrection. Resurrection is not resuscitation. Resurrection means death has been conquered, stripped of all authority, and the one who is resurrected now has a deathless body that cannot die again. That's resurrection. They And I don't understand that, and we've been talking about it for 2,000 years, but I don't understand that. I can't expect them to. So I understand they made up this story about grave robbers, and they don't understand. They didn't believe in the resurrection. That, That might help some people, you know, if you don't believe in the resurrection, it's okay. Um, Jesus will personally introduce himself to you. Do you realize what I'm saying? The gospel is not understanding something out of a book of facts and figures. 
It's not saying this is our doctrine, believe this, this, and this. No. Resurrection is not believing something your church told you to believe. Resurrection is I've met Jesus, and Jesus has actually communicated with me at my deepest self. I know he's alive, not because my brain can logic it out. Like the, these, the, the disciples, they didn't believe in the resurrection until they met Jesus himself. And even then they wondered. And, and did you notice she's not looking for Jesus in that sense. She's looking for a corpse. So it was Jesus who made himself known to her. That's interesting. She didn't believe in the resurrection. And nobody told her that she now has to believe in the resurrection and have enough faith for that and repent of all her sins and then Jesus would show up. Jesus came to her when she didn't believe in the resurrection, when she had no faith in the resurrection, never thought of it. It, Jesus takes the initiative of love and comes to reveal himself to it, the same as to us. This isn't that you've finally got enough faith. Finally, now you can invite Jesus. It's a jolly good job. He came to you, and that's why you have enough faith, because he came to you first, and you didn't even recognize him. Because she didn't. She suddenly has that sense that somebody is behind her. You know that. It's creepy, really. You, you, you sense someone's there. And in the original language, it's very strong as if she suddenly turned around. There, 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 was, there was somebody in this world of hers. She wasn't alone. And she doesn't know who it is. And so she suddenly turns around, or at least partially turns so she can see, oh, lady, you are standing right on the edge of a newness. You are tick-tock, tick-tock seconds away from, from something you've never dreamed of, something there's no words in any language to explain. What eye has never seen, ear has never heard. She's tick-tock minutes from discovery and she turns around blinded by tears and who, who is it well you see i've got a story i've got a story here there's been a grave robbery we've, we've decided that's the absolute truth we've decided that so i turn around this must be somebody involved this this person couldn't be in the garden unless he knew about it And he says, why, why, are you, why are you crying? Why are you weeping? And she said, because they have taken away my Lord, my master. And, and do you know where they put him? Do you know where they carried the corpse to? Because if you'll tell me, I'll go away and fetch him. Here we go again. Little Mary going out there to lift the body of what Jesus would have been a very athletic and strong person. No, she's not thinking. Jesus asked the question that changed everything. Why, why are you crying? It's very interesting that he does ask a question. It's God's M.O. 
he never comes blasting into your life with answers. Never. Because you, you don't know. He has to turn over the ground to get you thinking. He's, he's got to bring it out. What, what are you looking for? What, what's the matter with you? Tell me about it. It's fascinating. You know how fascinating it is to me. Um, I've, I've talked about it many times, that the God who knows everything chooses not to know it. So he can ask us a question. He never will assume he knows the answer, which he does. But I've got to tell him. I've got to spill my guts to him. I've got to tell him my hopelessness and everything I thought was going to happen, and it didn't happen. He wants to know that. that that's fascinating to me. But, but think about this again. He's interested in our emotions. She's crying. Okay, come on, come on. I, I'm the new Messiah. I've just risen from the dead. Got it? I'm on my way to the Father. It's an inauguration. I'm going to be declared Son of God of the whole universe. And you're, uh, please, lady, I, I've got a few minutes. What, what? Come on, I'm the Messiah. I rose from the dead. Okay, cheer up. Go, go, go. And I'm 90% serious. Why, why didn't he just say, hey, get, he's, he's taking the same route as the, the agents in there and saying, why are you weeping? Number one, Jesus, you know why she's weeping. But he, everything's on hold. He said, he told her a second later, I am on my way to the Father. I'm on my way. I'm on my way. I have not yet ascended. Good grief. He, he must have just risen before she got there. And, and now he said, I'm on my way. What stops heaven and earth? What stops Jesus from going to the Father and completing the resurrection process and being declared Son of God, Lord of all? What's holding up the inauguration? What's stopping the procession? A little lady's having a cry fit. And he stops and says, what's the matter? I think you get that. Every, every tear, he stops and says, why are you crying? He stops the ascension to ask why she was crying. And he, he doesn't stop to tell her he's risen from the dead. That's, he didn't stop to do that. He stopped to ask her why she was crying. Love is obsessed with her present distress. You've never cried a tear without the Holy Trinity stops and says, tell me about it. You've never laughed a laugh without the Trinity willing to join you. Because that is what agape love is about. It's about a union that wills, that intends to know us, to interact with us, share our deepest feelings, share ourself. He wills, determines to join us in our confusion. Not just to say, get a life, lady. Grow up, for goodness sake. I told you about this, didn't I, for three years. No. 
He gets inside our confusion, gets inside our grief and our fears, and we can say, you shouldn't have that if you'd have been listening. He doesn't know. He comes where we are, not where we should be. He meets us where we are, not where we expect us to be. It's where we are. That's confusion. That's grief. That's fear. And he gets inside of it and says, let's talk about it. I say again, and he insisted she told him about it. Even though he knew. But there's no sense to any relationship if he just knows us because, well, he knows everything. There's no relationship. To have relationship, that's a humility of God that, again, I don't understand that he deliberately chooses not to know what he does know so that I can tell him. The closest we get is when you are playing with your child or grandchild and, and, and you get down right to their level and you say in a kind of different kind of voice, you know, what's going on. Well, they come home from their first day at school and you say, what's going on? You, you jolly well know what happened. But you, you want to hear them in their baby talk tell you. And that is part of being human. That's relationship, the necessity to talk and share, share our stories. And he does it because that's, that's the way he is. Mind you, it's a very strange question to ask in a graveyard. Why are you crying? <laughs> oh, yeah. Just a minute. If he really means it, why are you crying in a graveyard? That becomes a very disturbing question. Because it suggests, I mean, why are you weeping? My first question, are you blind? I mean, are you stupid? Well, this is a graveyard. Expect to find crying people in a graveyard. But no, I guess, no, no. He's not stupid. Why are you weeping? It, it, it's introducing me, just nudging me, pushing me, just a bit. It's telling me that there is something going on here in fact, it has already gone on here that makes your grief and your tears completely irrelevant. Do, do you follow me? You are crying because you haven't seen the whole picture. If you knew the truth, lady, you wouldn't be crying. Therefore, your crying becomes a question mark. Why are you weeping? In the light of what has happened... There could be no tears. In the light of what has happened, <coughs> tears are almost illegal. It, it's, why are you weeping? And I say it's a question, it's a genuine question, but it also nudges you to, to take a second look. What, what's he talking? What, what? If I'm not supposed to be weeping, or at least if my tears become a question mark, it's because... Something has happened that I didn't know about. I mean, the only reason I'm weeping is that there's a dead person. 
But if he says, why are you weeping? The suggestion is there's not a dead person. Your weeping is not the last word. There's something going on here that's bigger than that empty tomb. In fact, it's bigger than all the prophets ever said. Because Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they never really said that. They, they'd never seen it. The Old Testament did not prepare us for this. This is bigger than anything that anybody had ever dreamt of. They didn't have the words for it. And, and this is even bigger than science. Good old science. Science has to have things happen at least twice so, so they can now compare them and do the experiment again. And Jesus didn't give them that. He just said, I'm here. And um, so I say, it's, yeah, I'm not appealing to your logic. It doesn't appeal to science. And that doesn't mean to say science is wrong. That's how you do experiments. But this is bigger than science. You do science on creatures and creation. This is the creator. Do, do you follow me? It's one thing to be a detective and look for fingerprints. It's quite another to meet the person who made the fingerprints. If you've got eyes, this creation is full of the fingerprints of God. He's all over the place. And you can make experiments. They're fascinating. You can say, you know, the experiments on the fingerprints. But when you meet the creator himself, there's no time to bring out your science. It's No, this is all bigger than that. And also, of course, this is massively bigger than religion. And I mean that. Religion doesn't have a clue of what we're talking about here because the first thing they did religion was to get rid of this get rid of it give you a textbook on the resurrection it it a jesus who lived two thousand years ago that's what the best you know she's weeping because all she's got left at this point is a cherished memory that's it He's, he is the one that delivered her from demons. Well, it wasn't a, a book on, you know, seven steps to deliverance or something. He walked into her life and she was delivered. He, he, he. He had healed the sick. And he never taught them how to do it. When he sent them out to do it, he sent them in his name, in his authority. They still didn't know why it happened when they laid hands on people. It's so upsetting, you know. I mean, rabbis would have formulas. Rabbis would write down and Jesus simply said, come to me. I will give you rest. And over and over and over again, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the good shepherd. I, I, I. you believe on me you will have the life of god see religion can get along very well without any personal presence of jesus they've got it all worked out 
But the real McCoy, if he's gone, it's all gone. Because he never left a formula. He never left a book of doctrine. This is ridiculous. Now he's gone, we don't know what to do. Because he did everything. And he lived a life that is beyond us. And yet he said, well, does it matter what he said? Because he's dead now. I've got nothing left. No wonder she was weeping. Uh, the, the question led her to the edge of a, a new world. It, it led her to the edge of a new creation, life, that she and no one had ever dreamt of this before. And it went beyond all words and all rules and all formulas and all traditions and everything the temple and the synagogue had said is. In fact, he now stood before her as I am, as they had never known it before. He would say it succinctly to John later on when he says, I am he that lives. I am he that lives. Or, as I've said it, the living one or livingness, the source of life. I was dead. Behold, or look, I am alive forevermore. That's the, that's the final I am. And here she's weeping because... He's gone. And she believed he was the maintenance man. <laughs> How many times in your life has Jesus come and you thought it was somebody else or gave credit to somebody else? You called him Fred. He wasn't offended. I think he smiles when we're thinking he's somebody else. But when he spoke, when he speaks, he said, all he said was Mary, Miriam. Nobody on the planet said Mary like Jesus did, because that's all he said. And at that point, and again, the, the Greek is very strong, it, it is twisting herself about, spinning and springing to him. That's the Greek word there. That when he said Mary, she spun around all the way around. And, and, and there was a, a spinning to it, which you know, to the Hebrews was a sort of dance, and, and leaped at him, pounced on him, sprang to him. Mary. Yeah. The, the, See, all she'd had was a memory, and that memory is like, like a, you know, in old family Bibles, you'll find a flower that's crushed alongside of old letters and memories. That's all she had of Jesus at that point. But this is more than a crushed flower. <laughs> this is the flower that will never die. This is not imagination. This is substance. It's making a silhouette against the morning sun. He spoke into her tortured mind her name, Mary. And so she jumped on him. 
try to hold him. The word he used was cling, grab, cling. So that I'd never let you go. And he gently tells her, don't, don't, don't cling to me. Because everything has changed. Not like a, a new administration, no. I mean, this is a new creation. This is the finale of Genesis 1. Genesis 1 was creation. This is not only the restoration of creation, this is a new creation. Mary, you don't understand right now. All you want is cling to me, which means let's go back to the Galilee. Let, let, let's sit on the mountains like we used to. Feed the 5,000, heal them. Come on, let, let's do it. Don't ever go away again. And Jesus said, no, Mary, no. What he was saying, we're not going back there. They'll never again be Galilee and they'll never again be me up there and you down there. You'll never sit in the twilight with the disciples and listen to me talk. Now, however wonderful that was, Mary, you are on the edge of something more wonderful than any words have ever described. And don't cling to me because you are trying to cling to me as I was. But me as I am and shall be means you as not as you were but as you have never dreamed yourself to be. We'll never go back to Galilee for me up there to do something for you down there. Rather, lady, you're going to do it. And when you do it, I will do it. And when I do it, you'll do it. I'll be inside of you. It's a new world. The old is gone forever. A new creation has burst upon the world. And you've got, you've got to let him go as the Jesus you thought he was or knew him to be, in order to join the wonder of this new world. And he said he's going to the Father, which in the original means he's going face to face with the Father, to inaugurate a wonder beyond their thoughts. You've got to let me go. But in letting me go, you find me. He said, I am ascending to my father and your father. Wow. Do you realize that's the first time that's ever been said? Over and over again in the gospel, Jesus said, my father, my father, my father. Right from the age of 12, he said, my father. They knew him as the one who says, my father, but never, never had he said, my father and your father. That's fascinating. It means I am going to my inauguration, risen from the dead, going face to face with the father, and you're coming with me. He, he's your father. But, now this is interesting. This demands another hour, but I've got to say it. He didn't say, I'm ascending to our Father. That would have made sense. Because what he did say is kind of clumsy. 
I ascend to my Father and your Father. You know, if I, if I say, I'm, I'm going, if I said to my brother, you know, I'm going to see my dad and your dad. No, that, that's, no, no, it'd be going to see our dad. Why, why does Jesus separate that? You've got, to, you've got to hear it. He is the Father's Son. He is God from God. But he includes us in that relationship. But he has not so joined us that he doesn't exist anymore. Jesus, when God became flesh, he didn't lose himself in us. But then, I don't lose myself in him. So although I am going to share with him his very life, I am going to experience to infinity his relationship with the Father. I have not become an independent God. You will find the world today is full of persons, some that we respect, who have got it all mixed up. And I use that term exactly the same way as you would scramble eggs. You've got it all mixed up. And for them, God lost himself in us, and we lost ourselves in God. So we can't really know him because we got lost inside of him. We have just become a bit of him. That is the essence of Buddhism. It's the essence of Eastern traditions. And God bless them. I'm not arguing with them this morning. I'm simply saying we're not what they're talking about. That tree out there is a tree because Jesus holds its very fibers together. The Bible says that. But Jesus isn't the tree. The tree isn't Jesus. It's a tree. But it's held together by him. And you, on an infinitely greater scale, are one with him. But he is the son of the father. My father, he said. And, what an and, an and as big as the cosmos. And your father. But you do not merge with me and disappear into me. You receive by grace. You have received by gift that which is his by unbegun life, God from God, life from life. But he carries us to the Father. And we share, and I say it infinitely, I put no limits on it, his relationship with the Father. So so we are called sons. But he is the Son. And he has gifted himself to us so that we now share exactly his relationship to the Father. And the Father shares with us his relationship to the Son. But all I can do is say thank you, thank you, thank you. Because it's not me, it's not my, what can I say? I'm not innately a God. I don't say, and I heard this on YouTube just the other day, and it's a man, I, I, 
I could like the guy. Um, we could say, I mean, we could pray together. He's he's no upstart, outstart. But he said, when you pray, close your eyes and go into your inner divinity and realize that you are God, and now you can pray. Yikes. No, man. No, 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 no. I, I don't go into my divinity. I recognize that by the gift of God, grace, God has given himself to us to the point where we now are exalted into the family of the Trinity to share in, participate, partake, live in the relationship of the Father and Son and Spirit. But we don't become the fourth person of the Trinity. Does that make sense? Uh, does it make sense to you out there? You can, yes, thank you, thank you. I see your nod, <laughs> and I see your thumbs up, yeah. Um, that's, uh, that wasn't a joke, I mean that. This is so vitally important. I, I live my day, I wake, I sleep in the realization I am Son of God, I am. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Oh yes, this is real. As he is, so are we. But don't get mixed up with him to the point where you think you are him. Do you follow me? You're, you're not. And again, I heard it just a few weeks ago. Someone preached much what we're saying here, and they said that you are the fourth person of the Trinity. Um, no, you're not. You're not. All I have is by grace. Jesus is God by unbegun. He, he is. As the Father is, as the Spirit is. And we are brought into that by gift. By gift that began before the foundation of the world. This was the intention, the purpose that we should be adopted into the family of God in Christ. Not just picked up and put there, but joined with Jesus, we're carried there. And then he goes on and he said, now go and tell my brethren. That's enough. He never said that before. Did you hear? Brethren, that means ones that come from the same womb. He, he is saying, he who is God joined the human race and came through a human womb. So he said, I'm just like you. And now we, you and he, we've come out of the same resurrection. So now God himself, through incarnation by resurrection, calls us his brethren. That's who you are. That's who you are. Fascinating. He didn't go and say, go and tell the disciples that their sins are forgiven and they're not going to hell. Sure. Think about Think Seriously, think about that. <coughs> I thought the gospel was all about that. No, apparently not. The gospel is, a, that's the P.S. Oh, glorious P.S. My sins are forgiven. But if, if that's where you're if that's the gospel, you haven't heard half of it yet, mate. I mean, this is the gospel. 
that you are taken in Christ Jesus into the relationship with the Father that he has. And when the Father said, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased, you're included in that. That's the gospel. It's not merely, you know, to hear hear some people preach the gospel, there's nothing much happening till you die. Then you go to heaven when you die, whatever that means. Because when you push them, it comes out to be sort of a mansion over the hilltop where there are little roses at the door and someone serves you coffee. I mean, I'm serious. What, what, what is the gospel? The gospel is now, now. I am now sharing in the same relationship with the Father as Jesus by grace. And I do it because I'm one with Christ who came to be one with me. Wow. And she goes back to the disciples. I'd love to see the look on their face. When she came through the door and said, I've seen the Lord, which is what she did. I say that because, you see, in their culture, you've heard me say this before, a woman was looked at as useless and stupid. And I'm not... That is exactly what they believed. A woman was there to bear children and to housekeep. That that was a woman. In fact, I think subconsciously, because that was widespread throughout the world, women never had any place. And I think it was because back from the beginning, the male blamed the woman for sin. That's how it came out of the Garden of Eden. And it stuck, and we call it misogyny, the hatred of women. And you, it's all over the world, wherever you find it. Where did it come from? And I, I can't tell you how big this is. I, I, I don't have an illustration that Jesus chose that the very first person that he spoke to after the resurrection was a woman and then after this which is not this story but he went to the other women who were on their way back to the city so the woman after mary came blustering in i've seen the lord i've seen the lord right on her heels came the other woman and said we saw him the 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 12 disciples were men. And they were men of their culture. That is, don't blame them. They were raised with this. In the court system of that day, a woman was not allowed to testify in a court. She doesn't have enough sense for that. She wouldn't know how to do it. That's So right on the subject of witnessing... There was a law about that. Women cannot be witnesses because they're not trustworthy. And Jesus said, we'll make all the witnesses to my resurrection women. How's that? You, you. See, um, it's the first fruits. And if you don't get it here, you won't get it there. Because the first fruit, you can't get much first than this. 
a few minutes after he rises from the dead. It's the first fruits of this new creation that he's bringing into being. And in that new creation, and Paul says it very plainly in Galatians, he said that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile. So you see, it transcends all racism. Don't don't tell me you belong to this race or that race. In Christ, Jesus Christ embraced every race of human beings and carried every race to death and in him all raised from the dead. Therefore, you can't, you can't fall back into racism. I can't come to you as a Brit and, and make that a part of my um, place before God. You, you can't come to me because you're white or you're black or you're green or you're yellow. It's, it doesn't make any difference. In Christ Jesus, we all rose above that. And then it goes on to say there is neither male nor female. Yikes, that's what we're talking about. It says in Christ Jesus, he did away with sexism. He didn't do away with sexes, but he did away with sexism. That is, he exalted woman to be eye to eye with woman. Ish and Isha, co-image bearers. One cannot fulfill themselves without the other. He lifted woman and placed her where she was created to be, eye to eye, shoulder to shoulder, face to face with man. And of course, what happens, although no one ever talks about it, is that that exalted man to his position because when man thinks that he's over and lording over a woman, in actual fact, he has degraded himself. And so for the woman to come to her place brings the man to his place. And now they see face to face, eye to eye. They found their identity is not in their nationality. Your identity is not in your sex. Your identity is, I am in Christ Jesus, face to face with the Father, and therefore face to face with my fellow humans. And then it goes on, you know, neither slave nor free. So it doesn't matter whether you're wealthy or poverty-stricken. You're equal in Christ Jesus. Yeah. Of course, when they heard it, do you remember on the Emmaus Road? Boy, you catch little words, people give themselves away. On the Emmaus Road, do you remember the two, whoever they were, they were brokenhearted. I mean, they were where Mary was at dawn that same day. And they're going along and Jesus comes and says, what's the matter? Have you heard the whole thing of what they said? You know, they said, we had hoped, we had hoped, we thought. But then he's crucified. Okay, I've heard that a lot. But do you remember the last thing they said? The woman came this morning and said that they had seen him. But we didn't see him. They put as much faith in what those women had said as if it had been a blubbering idiot. Because they were still, they heard that in the morning. And now it's evening time, 
and they are still as hopeless and in despair because all we did was hear the woman who had some tales about having seen him. Who believes a woman? We are still as miserable as we were at the beginning. Yeah, that's the way it is. The early church, the early, early church, they called the Virgin Mary the second Eve. They said the first Eve brought the first Adam down. Mary is the second Eve who presents to us the last Adam and lifts us all up. And in that they honored and revered the Virgin Mary as the second Eve. She brought to us the Christ. She was the God-bearer. That's what it means, this faith that we talk about. It is knowing, it is meeting at a deepest level with Jesus who is, having joined the human race, died the death of the human race, and when he rose, carried the human race by sheer gift, because he did that at our worst. You, you couldn't get any worse than that. You're going to torture and crucify God. Well, people are told they're, they're damned in hell for chewing, spitting, and smoking. Oh, wow. He, he met. Has anybody, you know, you tried to torture God? I mean, you talk about sins that can't be forgiven. Mankind joined together. Do you remember what I said? The religious and the powerful. Rome and the temple, they joined together as our representatives. And they tortured, and it was their plan to murder God. I don't think you get worse than that. If you're looking for sins, that about, you know, gets the gold medal. And it was at that point, that point, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It was that human race that he got on the inside of through his sufferings and death. And inside their darkened, blinded minds, he revealed himself as love and light and life and picked up that human race, our human race, and carried us to the Father. That's the gospel. And you see, religion, and you hear me talk about religion a lot, and, and I'm sorry if I talk too much about it, but religion is, you see, it's, it's easy if you're talking about murder or rape or uh, whatever. That's easy. That's sin, you know. But religion, well, you know, they they talk from the Bible, don't they? They, I mean, they go to church every Sunday, and and, and we we don't realize what religion has done. Just within years, just years of what we just read, religion would sweep in and clean out everybody who wept because they didn't know a person of Jesus. There's no place in religion for a person or Jesus. They've set up shop. 
They've got the rules. Religion gave us the formulas. Religion puts out the codes and it's all for sale if you have enough faith, enough repentance and enough money to give in the offering. Religion says we'll organize this. No blubbering woman at a tomb. We'll get this organized. Control it. Invent doctrines about a dead person and try and do your best to follow him. Do you realize the early church would not recognize what is being preached in most pulpits today? They wouldn't even know what you're talking about. And you've heard me say this, especially if you've been to the Bible school, that much that once was, think about it. Think about what I've said this morning. Much that once was is lost. Because none lived who could remember it. It doesn't take long to lose something. Some things that should not have been forgotten were lost. And what was genuine history became a legend. And the legend became a myth. And whoever in their right mind today thinks that this ever happened or could happen now And when you say what I said at the beginning, that it's not knowing about Jesus, it's it's not saying I believe in the resurrection like I believe in the 4th of July. It's, I've met with Jesus. Jesus himself has spoken into my life. I met with Jesus and I have never been the same since. My entire life now has come under that I met him. And that changes everything. He's not a dead person who did wonderful things, a faded photo that's stuck in a Bible now with the long dead flowers. Religion says there's no need for a personal, present Jesus, though they use that term sometimes. But but religion says we've got it handled. You say this prayer after me, And um, the magic happens. And I I have seen it. I've been around, you know. I've been around. I've seen it. People just repeat prayers with blank eyes. They don't know what they're saying. This? Standing there? Spinning around? He's alive? They wouldn't even know what you're talking about. Religion is obscene. It's disgusting. It's filthy. It's worse than the mafia. You go there weeping, saying, I want to know Jesus. They'll show you the door. You're getting too personal, too excited. Or weep for joy, and they'll show you the door. The gospel is the stunning news that he's alive. He is alive. He's more alive than anybody else on the planet. And he's alive inside of us. And the gospel is the call to realize that and to meet him who is inside of you personally. The gospel is not about ancient history. It's not a book of information. It says, I am the living one. I was dead. Can you get it better than that? 
I was dead. Behold, I am alive forevermore. And he is inside of us. That's about it. I've gone hopelessly over time. So I trust you're saying, Father, forgive him. He knows no what he does. Father, we thank you. You are the ultimate reality. The only reality. We thank you that Jesus, Lord, God, and Savior, you alive inside our humanity, inside of us, carrying us in you and with you to the Father. Thank you. Holy Spirit, open the eyes of our understanding that we might know it and know it well. Amen.